Uh, hi, everyone. Thanks uh, for joining us today. Uh, let me kick off then by introducing Professor Edward Fieldhouse from the British Election Study. All three of you are going to have a, a little bit of an expansive chat about your areas of expertise, and then we'll open the floor up to questions. Uh, and as many as you like, we're sort of freewheeling till about 11. So there you go. Okay, um, that's better. Right, so good morning. Um, I'm Ed Fieldhouse, and I'm one of the directors of the um, British Election Study. Uh, so this morning we're going to be talking um, about some of the implications of our research on the BES for the forthcoming general election. Uh, but before we do that, um, I want to give you a little bit of background to this research, an overview of our ideas about how elections work and what the implications are for the forthcoming election. So the research that we're um, talking about, I'll be talking about this morning, is um, being published in the book that Anand kindly mentioned at the outset um, on electoral shocks, um, the volatile voter in a turbulent world. And as the title suggests, it, it really explores um, how voters have become um, more changeable, more likely to switch between elections. And we're trying to understand why that is. And why, as a result, um, do political events, um, unexpected happenings, um, key decisions tend to have a bigger effect now than what they did in the, in the past. Um, now, there's been similar um, or equivalent books after um, most general elections since the British election study began in 1964. And each of them have made an important contribution. For example, on the importance of social position and class voting through to the rise of issue voting, uh, and more recently on, um, uh, on performance politics and how governments are judged on um, how they manage the economy. All of these... All of these um, provide really important insights, and we don't contradict any of these. But they don't explain um, why voters, or why elections have become more unpredictable than they have in the past. And that's exactly what we're trying to explore in this, in this book. And we think the answer to that lies in electoral shocks. As I said, those events, those decisions, those unexpected changes um, that happen in everyday politics, happen um, in politics. Because of the... Um, because of the imp increasing voter volatility, the increasing tendency of voters to switch between elections, we argue that these shocks have a greater impact than they have previously. Now, um, I can show you um, how voters have become more um, switchable, more changeable, um, by illustrating a comparison of between 1964 and 19, uh, sorry, and 2017. Um, now, these charts um, use panel data, so they compare the same voters at one election and how they voted in the following election. And you'd be, so for example, the one on the right uses our recent panel, um, which tracks the same 30,000 voters over, over 17 different instances, over 17 different time points since 2014. Um, the colors just represent the colors of the parties. The left hand of the chart represents what people voted for in 2015, and the right hand part, what they voted for in 2017. So, you, but by looking at the size of the blocks moving across, um, and the, the amount to which they, they switch uh, between colors, um, helps you see the amount of um, changeability. And I'm sorry this, um, this display isn't working here. I think that's... Okay, yeah. That's not a mistake, sorry. Um, so hopefully those sitting in the middle can see one of the other displays. Um, but what you really see from this slide is, is quite clear, which is 
on the left-hand slide, voters between 1964 and 1966 pretty much didn't move. There's just big blocks. They either voted Conservative and they voted Labour, and they did so at both elections. There isn't much by way of change. But if you look at the right-hand chart, you can see an enormous amount of change. Voters are um, switching in quite large numbers. In fact, there's about, about a third of a third of all voters switched in these two elections. So you get a bit of a bowl of spaghetti rather than these, um, these big uh, monolithic blocks. Um, we, can we can chart how that tendency has changed over time just by plotting what we call individual level volatility. And this is very simple. This is just the percentage of people who voted for a different party um, at the second election compared to the first. So people who changed their vote. And as you can see in this chart, there's been a steady... Um, upward, upward shift in volatility since the British election studies began in the 1960s. And it reached a peak in 2015 when um, um, volatility was over 40%, more than four out of 10 voters switched parties. It dropped back a little bit, as Allegra said in the, in the um, ITV piece, it dropped back a little bit in um, 2017, but the last three elections have been the most volatile on record. So the question really that we want to address is why is this happening? Um, now, we, we put forward two major explanations. Um, trying to model these changes, we, we basically find two key things that matter. One is the decline of party identification. That is, voters have become less attached to the political parties than they were in the past. So people used to say they identify with or they feel close to a particular um, political party not just how they vote, but how they actually feel. They, feel close, they felt close to a, a, a political party. That sense of attachment has steadily declined over time, and John will be talking more about this in the next talk. The second explanation is um, the rise of smaller parties. So um, for various reasons, um, party support has become more fragmented, and um, smaller parties have increasingly um, come to the fore. Now, those smaller parties, um, tend to be less good at hanging on to their votes from one, share of, from one election to the next. So the better small parties do, the more um, volatile electorate tends to be. So that's the second major explanation. But the, together, these things only explain about half the upward drift in volatility. Um, so to understand the rest of that change, we have to look at electoral shocks. And it's important to note here that electoral shocks both contribute to volatility, but they also um, determine... Or they, or, or they also determine the way in which volatile voters tend to move, and therefore they, they, they have an impact on um, how shocks work. So shocks will have a greater impact because voters are more likely to shift. No, that's the wrong way. So um, just to explain what I mean by electoral shocks, I've already, uh, I've already said how they are, um, how we refer to events and, and decisions and, um, and um, unexpected changes. But we have three basic criteria by which we define shocks. Firstly, that they represent an abrupt change to the status quo. And that usually is something coming from the outside of everyday politics. It's not purely internal to the party political system. It's what social scientists call something which is exogenous, or at least partly exogenous. It's coming from the outside. 
Um, secondly, they have to be very salient, very difficult to ignore, um, very diff difficult for voters to ignore, but very also very difficult for um, politicians to ignore. And because they're salient and, and, and big, if you like, um, they, um, they cut through even to people who are less interested in politics. The third, the third criteria is that um, they have to be relevant to party politics. So you can imagine various things may, various big events may happen, but if they're not party political in nature, then they're not going to have a big impact on, the, um, on elections. So they have to be relevant to party politics. Now, we also show in the book how uh, shocks work, and they work in three main ways. Shocks can change the salience of issues, that is, they bring some issues to the fore and they make other issues less important, um, and in, in terms of what drives voters to vote the way they do. Um, so you'll see various examples of this, but obviously um, you, you've seen recently how the Brexit shot has brought to the fore issues around Europe and immigration. Um, they also change perceptions of the competence of political actors, political parties. Um, so for example, um, a shock may affect how voters see a particular party in terms of their ability to manage um, a particular area of politics. So, for example, the um, global economic crisis had an impact on um, Labour's perceived competence for managing the economy. Now, the third mechanism we identify is that um, shocks change the social or political image of parties. That is, they they can change how people see the parties in terms of what they stand for and who they stand for. Um, so they, they make people view the parties in a different way, and this is important. So if you look at the um, Scottish independence referendum, for example, Labour stopped being seen so much as a party of the left as being a party of the union. So in our book, we cover five recent um, electoral shocks. Um, which are listed here. So there's the, um, the immigration shock following the EU accession in, in the early 2000s, um, the global financial crisis and subsequent austerity, the 2010 coalition government, the Scottish independence referendum, and then the, of course, the um, biggest shock of all, the, um, the EU referendum and the subsequent um, vote for Brexit. So what are the implications of um, this research for 2019. Obviously, we can't predict future shocks, but we can try to understand the impact of the shocks that have happened on the 2019 voters, obviously Brexit being the most important. Now, there are three, there are three important implications for 2019. Firstly, that volatility is likely to remain high because volatility increases from generation to generation. So the younger voters entering the electorate tend to be more likely to shift than their parents. They have less party attachments than their parents. So this upward ch change in volatility is likely to, to continue. Now, obviously, it's going to vary um, from election to election, including in 2019. So th it could be offset in 2019 um, because of the fact that Labour and Conservatives got um, a large share of the vote in 2017, as I said. Um, smaller parties tend to lose more of their votes. So the fact that the larger parties did well could put a cap on, um, on volatility. Secondly, um, the Brexit shock um, led to new dividing lines in politics. 
And these could become crystallized, meaning that certain types of people could be more likely to stay with the choices they made in 2017. So for example, young people voting Labour, um, Brexit supporters voting Conservative, and so forth. So these new dividing lines along the, along the lines of education, age, values, and so forth, um, may cause voters to remain more stable. And then thirdly, um, as Chris will be talking about, I think, um, um, if Brexit identities, if people have become identified as leavers or remainers, they have a new political identity to replace their party identity. And if this remains aligned with um, party choice, then the rise of Brexit identities could lead to greater stability. So these are all things that could offset um, the rise in volatility. I say could because um, I think, um, uh, as, as John will be showing, that's the evidence is suggesting that may not happen. Um, the second major implication for 2019 is that um, the, the Brexit shock will continue to have a large impact because of the more volatile electorate. That, as I said, voters are not anchored. They're not um, strongly attached to their political parties, and therefore their choice on um, their choice is likely to be affected by what parties do on Brexit. And it's important to say, I probably should have said this in the previous slide, but it's important to say in this context that um, shocks provide our political opportunities. And not, so the mechanisms of shocks work um, through how parties respond to them. So there's nothing automatic about, um, about how um, shocks affect um, the, different, the popularity of different parties. It depends on how the parties respond to them. So they provide opportunity for parties. And um, clearly, in the case of Brexit, the, the, the Conservatives went for um, a, a leave vote. They appealed to leave voters. And that's still playing out in 2019. Now, and the third implication of our research for 2019 is that the campaign does matter. Um, we saw that in um, the last election. And, and it was visible mainly because a lot of the shifting during the campaign all went in the same direction. So it went towards Labour. Um, now, I think campaigns generally um, have an impact. But quite often, they result in shifts going in countervailing directions. So they basically cancel, cancel each other out. Whereas in 2017, you saw um, a, a drift in one direction towards Labour. Um, so the campaign does matter. Um, but of course, it depends on the uh, on how well the, the parties perform in the campaign. Here's another of those um, what we call Sankey plots. This is just to give you an idea of that of what is actually happening in practice. And John will be saying more about this. But this is looking at vote um, switching since 2017. So, i.e., how people voted in 2017 and what they said they would vote in the most recent wave of the election study. And that was data collected between the 1st and the 11th of November. And that's the 30,000 plus voters that Jane referred to. Um, so clearly, um, there's a lot of switching, essentially. It's comparable to what we saw in um, 2017. It's quite comparable to what we saw in 2015. So unless there's a strong drift back to the major parties, which there could be if people decide that, that those parties offer the best um, option um, under the current electoral system, um, volatility could drop. But at the moment, it's looking like it was in the previous election, i.e. high. 
And finally, um, to illustrate the impact um, of shocks in 2019, um, I, I wanted to show you this slide, which is how the parties break down by their Brexit preference. So this is Brexit, this is Bre Brexit preferences, leave or remain, by vote intention in the recent wave of the um, British election study. So the height of the bar represents the popularity of the party at that point in time. And the colours within the bar represent how many of them are voting um, gold for remain and blue for leave. And what you see is that, um, is that the parties are very um, polarised in terms of their Brexit support. They're more sorted than they actually were at the previous election. They're more sorted than they were in 2017. It's a, um, I think it's 88% of, um, of uh, Labour voters or Labour-intended voters um, in the recent um, study, the recent survey, said they would vote Remain in, in, in another referendum. And 85% um, of Conservatives would vote Leave. So that's compared to 68% um, of Labour voters in... Um, 68% of Labour voters were Remain in 2017, and 72% and of um, Conservative voters were Leave in 2017. So those figures have gone up. There's more polarisation. OK, so I hope that gave you a little bit of understanding of um, the arguments in the book and how that might be important for the forthcoming election. I'm going to pass over now to John, who's going to talk... Um, a little more detail about voter volatility. Thanks a lot, Ed. <clears throat> yeah, so I'm going to be just filling out a few more of the details about what we've seen with voter volatility up until now, and then putting 2019 into that context. So the first thing to bear in mind is this is the percentage of voters who were identifiers with each of the major parties uh, all the way back to the 1960s through to 2017. And I could tell you the story about how Labour goes up and down from election to election and the Conservatives gain more identifiers or fewer. But really the big story here is this big black area at the top, which is the percentage of non-identifiers or people with only a weak identity. And that has just been increasing from a very small minority of voters to really around half of them now have no identity of a party at all. And this has played out a lot in recent elections because this means there's a lot of voters who don't have that strong automatic attachment that they know how they will vote every time. Instead, they potentially will switch. And we're going to show this chart a lot today. Uh, they are switching at ever higher rates. And this is the direct result of this group of voters who don't have any identity with a particular party. So moving now to how things have been changing since 2017, up until the pre-election wave, this was just before the campaign started, we're seeing a lot of switching here. We're seeing the conservative vote splintering towards Lib Dems on the Remain side, the Brexit party at quite a high rate, and also a lot of people saying they just don't know who they're going to vote for yet. Uh, and that's the same for Labour as well. A lot of their voters have switched to the Lib Dems. A lot of them say they don't know who they'll vote for. A surprising number have even switched to the conservatives. So there's a lot of volatility here. Now, how does this factor into this chart? Well. I've given you two figures here, and that depends on whether we include people who say they don't know who they're going to vote for or not. So the figure is either a bit higher than 2017 or a little bit lower. Now, the way to think through that is about 14% of our respondents at the moment say they don't know who they're going to vote for. 
Now, if we look at 2017, among the don't knows, around half of them ended up switching back to their 2015 party. And this is a key thing to look out for in the 2019 election. Is this going to happen again, that there will be a general switching back among people who are undecided towards their previous party? If that did happen, then we would expect around 30% of voters to switch between 2017 and 2019. And that's pretty comparable to what we saw in 2015 and 2017 switching. Maybe a little bit lower, but along the same order of magnitude. However, before we think this is just a repeat of 2017, there's some ways in which this election is actually very different. So this chart here shows the percentage of voters who supported Labour or Conservative at the previous election, what percentage of them switched to the other major party. Now, if we look at 2017, it was the highest ever figure on record for switching between Labour and Conservative directly. Brexit came along, and as we said, it was a very large electoral shock, and made people who would never have considered voting for the other major party switch directly to them because they suddenly found themselves on the opposite side of the referendum debate. That's not happening this time. This time, with the red triangle there, it's really quite low. There's not many people switching directly between Labour and Conservatives. And that's mostly because the people who are going to do that have already switched. That's already happened in 2017. The switching we're seeing this time is happening a lot more within Brexit blocks than further switching between them. There is some of that, but 2017 saw so much switching on that basis that there wasn't that much left to go. Another historical uh, comparison we need to bear in mind is how good are the major parties at holding on to their previous voters. So this chart here shows the percentage of voters for a party at a previous election, what percentage of their voters ended up leaving the party at the next election. So I'm showing it for Labour and Conservatives here. And what we've tended to see is that both of the major parties are pretty good at holding on to their previous voters. Generally in the past, somewhere around 15, 20% of them will switch to another party at the next election. Now, by contrast, for Liberal Democrats and Greens and the other minor parties, they consistently lose half their voters at the next election. The only way they manage to keep their vote share up is by recruiting new voters to make up for the huge amount of churn you see beneath the surface. But this time, and this is on the same axis here, Labour, for instance, in the pre-election wave that was just a few weeks ago, more than half of their 2017 voters no longer intended to vote for them. That is historically unprecedented in any of the previous surveys we've seen that a major party would lose that many of their previous voters. And you can sort of see this in two possible ways. On the one hand, Labour is doing historically badly on this. On the other hand, perhaps that means we should expect it to revert a bit more to the historical trend. If Labour merely improved to historically bad rather than unprecedentedly bad, they would regain a lot of voters. And the Conservatives too here are at the very upper end of defections away from them that we've seen in historic surveys. So either we're really seeing a change in the way that major parties hold on to their voters, or there's a lot of opportunity for the major parties to regain their voters during the campaign. And certainly from my perspective, this is a big thing I'm going to be watching out for going forwards in 2019. So we've also got some preliminary data from the first two weeks of the campaign wave. So this is just in the last uh, two or three weeks of data. And we can look at how much switching has taken place since the pre-election wave. And it's quite a lot. Uh, this is only a two-week gap between these two surveys. And you're seeing voters switching in quite large numbers. You have the Brexit party collapsing in a major way towards the Conservatives. You have Liberal Democrat voters flowing towards Labour. And you also have people who said they were undecided switching back towards the major parties. 
So how much volatility is this? Well, it's 21% of voters in just a couple of weeks have changed their vote intention. That's very high. If we exclude the don't knows from that, it's 13%. And for comparison, that was the amount of volatility we saw between the entire elections of 1964 and 1966. We're now getting the same amount of volatility in two weeks that we had in two years in the 1960s. So this campaign, although it might look quite stable on the surface, has seen a lot of volatility beneath the surface. And that means that we can actually have a lot of opportunity for further change here in one direction or another. There, even though there's only a few weeks left, there could be a lot of change happening even now. So to conclude, voter volatility has increased dramatically. And it looks like it's going to remain high unless something changes quite a lot in the last few weeks. Labor at the moment are currently set for a historically bad retention. But that also means that if they merely improve to very bad, there'll be a lot of change. So that's an important positive and negative for Labour, that they do have the opportunity to gain merely by improving their results among their own previous voters. Thank you very much. OK, uh, thank you very much. So I'm going to talk uh, more specifically about the effect of Brexit uh, between, uh, on voting between 2015 and, and 17, and, and then looking uh, a little bit at how this might play out uh, both in 2019 and, and thinking more broadly about uh, the sort of long-term implications for the way British politics uh, is structured. And we've been talking a lot about uh, volatility, and uh, this is what voting switching looked like between 2015 and 2017 uh, for Leave and Remain voters. And you can see that it wasn't just sort of random switching, which is what it sort of looks like when you, when you sort of pull everything together. There's just people going all over the place. It's much more directed. So for Leavers, it went uh, towards the Conservatives. And then for Remainers, it went uh, towards Labour. But uh, this doesn't necessarily just mean that people were voting for specific policies, right? It, it might mean uh, something more fundamental about uh, the way people are seeing the world. And particularly, uh, we draw on a, an idea uh, from social psychology, from uh, social identity theory, which shows that people uh, can think about the, the world in, in sort of categorical terms. Who is us and, and who is them? And traditionally in politics, of course, the, the us and them is parties. You know, you, you, you are my party, and they are some other party. They're the outgroup. But what we saw uh, in uh, the run-up to the referendum and in the aftermath is that Brexit was starting to become something that people started to categorize the world into. And uh, what we saw when we used a battery of questions to measure this that was originally developed uh, for measuring party identities was that just before the referendum, people were sort of identifying fairly equally between the two of them. But immediately after the referendum, people were much more strongly thinking of themselves as being leave or remain than they were in terms of thinking of themselves as a partisan. And we can also see that that gap has remained uh, pretty stably. It, it you know, wiggles a bit here and there depending on what happens. Uh, but uh, the most recent data from uh, a sort of month or so ago shows that the referendum identity is much, much stronger uh, than uh, party identity. And this obviously has uh, huge potentials for how uh, politics is, is going to play out. Right? So uh, we've talked already about how uh, this has been driving 
uh, switching between parties, but uh, Ed mentioned earlier as well, it could also result in terms of uh, stability. If people settle into their referendum sides and, and the referendum sides become aligned with uh, partisan identities, then we might see uh, some stability. So one thing uh, we can look at is how do these uh, different identities map onto uh, the different parties, particularly the Conservatives and Labour, and how do they uh, sort of cross-cut? So if we look at people uh, that voted Conservative in 2017, we see that the, the largest block by far are people who feel more strongly leave than they do uh, Conservative. And uh, if we sort of skip ahead to the uh, uh, Labour, you won't be surprised to hear that the largest block is people who feel more strongly remain uh, than Labour. But going back to the Conservatives, the other things to notice are that there's a very, very small number of people who feel uh, more conservative than Labour. It's only about uh, sort of 25% in total. So the vast majority of people who voted conservative at the last election feel much more strongly about the referendum than they do about the party. And so perhaps it's not unsurprising then when you look at what happened uh, around the European Parliament election, you see huge numbers of conservative voters switching to the Brexit party. And then you know they sort of hold up in the polls and then uh, Boris Johnson comes along and then you know they all start flowing back around the other way. So uh, the way that Brexit maps onto party, party identity and party competition is going to be very important for how these things uh, are driving uh, yeah, the political change. And then if we go back to Labour, the important things to note are first that actually the, uh, the sort of partisan core of the Labour parties is much stronger uh, than the Conservatives. So uh, around 40% of uh, Labour voters at the last election actually feel more strongly uh, Labour than they did on the referendum. So for, for Labour, this is you know, good news because it means they have a sort of stronger partisan core that they can uh, sort of fall back to. And uh, you know, we, did, we have seen less uh, volatility amongst Labour voters and who they've been switching to uh, in, in sort of the last uh, couple of years. And uh, the other thing to note is that uh, both sides have uh, sort of counter uh, referendum identities to the way that uh, you would think the sort of majority of people. So uh, for the Conservatives, they have uh, about 20% of their voters feel more strongly remain than Conservative. And for Labour, there's about 20% of people who feel more strongly leave uh, than Labour. And these are obviously the people who might hold the key to what happens in this election. Right? If Brexit is still the, uh, the issue that is driving people's vote choice, uh, these, these are the people we need to uh, look out for and, and see what they're going to do. And so if we look at how they were going to vote uh, about a month or so ago, if we first look at the, the sort of leave identifying Labour voters, we see uh, first that actually most of them are going somewhere else other than Labour. So uh, Labour is getting about 20%, uh, but that means about 80% are either going to someone else uh, or they're going, uh, they don't currently know, as John was talking about, there's still quite a few people who are undecided. And the really important thing to note about this graph is that there's a sort of quite a large chunk who are going directly to the Conservative Party. And uh, there's also a large chunk who were intending to vote the Brexit Party. And we've seen in, in the sort of polls that uh, a lot of these voters have flowed uh, towards the Conservatives as well. So the thing to note here is that uh, there's a very large direct flow from Labour to the Conservatives. And keep that in mind as I show you what the Conservative Remainers look like who have hardly any direct flow from the Conservatives to Labour. Instead, there's a much larger chunk of Conservatives staying loyal to the Conservatives, but also there's a huge chunk going towards the Liberal Democrats. So 
This is important for two reasons. First, that it suggests that Labour aren't going to benefit in terms of uh, conservative Labour competitions from conservative Remain voters, but that the Liberal Democrats might be uh, benefiting from uh, conservative Remainers switching towards them. And so in terms of conservative Labour competitions, it's a very one-sided uh, battle, right? The Conservatives are picking up Labour Leave voters, but Labour aren't getting any uh, conservative Remain, or not many conservative Remain voters. So what, what does this mean for the sort of you know, broader picture of, of British politics? Does this mean that we're, we're shifting from uh, political competition that has historically been primarily about economics, about redistribution, about taxation and that sort of thing, to something that looks perhaps a bit more like America, where it's all about uh, cultural divides and uh, issues uh, to do with the sort of social dimension of politics. And this is uh, something that we look at in our book. Um, and uh, basically what we find is that if you, uh, if you look at all the sort of political parties, so the choice set, you know, including the Liberal Democrats and UKIP and the Greens and, and, and so on, we found that in 2015, the economic and cultural dimensions uh, were actually pretty similar already. This is pre-referendum, remember. So, you know, these two dimensions are, uh, are sort of neck and neck when it comes to uh, sort of overall vote choice. And then when we go to uh, 2017, uh, we see a small uptick for the, con uh, the sort of cultural dimension, but actually the thing to note is it's actually not that big a change. And uh, this at first sort of throws people, but if you think back to 2015, we already had huge UKIP vote. Uh, you know, the Greens did quite well, and Lib Dems obviously not doing very well, but you know, there was still a lot of vote choice along these uh, sort of cultural lines. What really changed in 2017 was how vote choice between Labour and the Conservatives was structured. So if we look at the sort of same, uh, the same thing, uh, we can see that the economic dimension in 2015 was much more important for, for driving Conservative and Labour vote choice. Uh, but then when we go to 2017, we find that actually uh, the cultural dimension is suddenly much, much more important. So how are these things going to change uh, this time around? And uh, so Ed and John have, have both given you some clues that actually we might be uh, getting even more sorted along Brexit lines uh, than we were previously. And if we go back to the sort of choice amongst all parties, we find that in 2019, the sort of preliminary uh, pre-election data shows that the cultural dimension is becoming uh, even more important. And then if we go to the Labour and Conservative vote choice, we find uh, an enormous change once again. So at least in our sort of pre-election data, uh, it looks like this sort of second dimension of, of politics is actually becoming perhaps the, uh, the first dimension of uh, British politics. But uh, this sort of raises a bigger question. Uh, you know, does this mean that British politics is uh, sort of realigned? Have we undergone a realignment? And perhaps, uh, you know, how would, we, how would we know, I think is a sort of more fundamental question. How would we know if we had become realigned? What would, what would alignment look like? And there is no sort of objective threshold we can point to that says, oh, well, you know, uh, this number of people voted this way and this number of people uh, voted this way. You know, if we got to 100% leave voting one way and 100% remain voting, we could probably agree that was alignment. But at some point between, you know, no alignment and that, there's probably some uh, level we might think that counts as alignment. And uh, one way we can do this is to think about how does the sort of alignment along Brexit lines 
compare to previous alignments? And particularly, how does it compare to class voting in the 1960s? So if you ever studied British politics at university, you uh, probably know this uh, quote, which sort of features on uh, thousands of undergraduate essays every year. Uh, and uh, basically, I mean, it was an exaggeration even at the time. But if we think back to the sort of post-war period, it's British politics is primarily about class. So, so what does that look like when we measure it? And uh, there's been long, uh, fairly tedious academic debates about how you measure the extent of class voting. Uh, but one of the most common ways is something called the, uh, the Thompson Index of Class Voting, which just, just measures uh, the sort of ratio of people in one class, so working class, say, voting labor, or uh, people who aren't working class voting labor, and comparing to you know, both sides voting uh, for other parties. And uh, when we use that measure to, to measure class voting in the post-war area, it ends up being about 1.6. And we can use the same measure, because we've got nice binary categories, leave and remain, and see how does this map onto uh, how people are voting uh, along Brexit lines. And if we look at 2017 for the Conservatives, we can see that, well, actually, it's uh, pretty similar to the levels of class voting. So, so the level of alignment between leave and remain is pretty similar uh, between the alignment between the working classes and labor in, in the post-war era. And if we think that you know, that was an era in which everything was about class, then you know, maybe this is an era in which everything is about Brexit. But having said that, there's, of course, some slight complications. We could measure it slightly differently. We could measure it with uh, Remain voters and, and Labour, and then it goes, uh, it goes down a little bit because um, you know, the, the Remain side is, is slightly more uh, fragmented. Uh, but we could also see what it looks like this time, and we could look at the 2019 data, and it's gone up even higher. And so maybe uh, you know, we are, regardless of how you, you measure it, uh, looking at a sort of uh, levels of class voting. But the other thing to say is that uh, class voting isn't the only uh, comparison we could make, right? And there was another referendum that had major consequences for uh, British politics, which was in Scotland. So what does Scotland look like if we uh, use the same measures in terms of the yes and no sides uh, and, and voting for the SNP? Well, that looks like that. And uh, so compared to the Scottish referendum, actually Brexit, you know, small, uh, small fry when it comes to explaining British voting behavior. Uh, but if we, if we ignore the SNP, which is uh, an incredibly strong uh, alignment between uh, referendum vote choice and, and vote choice in the election, it does look um, like uh, Brexit is a very strong alignment between uh, the way people voted in the referendum and the way people are voting in elections uh, compared to sort of historical um, uh, benchmarks. And so I'll leave you with a, uh, a slightly cheeky uh, paraphrasing uh, of a quote. I'm not sure it's strictly true, but it wasn't really strictly true in the uh, 60s either, but uh, it's definitely uh, something to think about. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. Um, we'll open the floor up to questions now, so do put your hands up and there is a microphone winging its way to you. But just in, in the meantime, whilst we're waiting for that, I mean, Labour have been obviously desperately trying for this not to be the Brexit election to the point where I think they complained about Sky's branding of it. I mean, have they, they've literally lost that battle. I mean, from what you're saying, this is essentially the Brexit election. Would we agree with that? Um, yeah, I, I would certainly agree with that, and or, or at least it's a Brexit election, because I think we might have said that the 2017 election was the Brexit election as well. But uh, 
It, it, the same thing happened in, in 2017, where you saw both parties actually do their best not to mention the sort of B word. And I think partly that's because Labour know that, um, you know, their best hope is, is for it not to be about Brexit, actually, because they need to bring back people who don't agree with them on Brexit, but do agree with them on, on other issues. So if they can make it about uh, another set of issues, then they stand to, to benefit. I, I, th I think what the uh, campaign in uh, both in 2017 and, and this time probably shows that uh, parties don't have, you know, sort of monopoly power on, on that sort of thing. You know, they, they can try and set the agenda, but actually people might just care about other stuff um, mm. anyway. And it's interesting when you talk about, um, you know, the traditional class-based economic campaigns that actually if you move beyond that it looks like you know you can see that from the spending promises you know one pound for every 28 from the conservatives versus uh, labor in the sense that the conservatives have cottoned onto the fact that actually the even if all the statistics and all the experts say you'll be a bit poorer if you vote for this actually it's gone beyond um economic attitude is that would is that where we're at which is a shift isn't it I mean, yes, it's, uh, Chris, as Chris said, it's, um, it's not always in the Labour Party in particular's interest to promote um, Brexit as, a, as the major issue. But there is a bit of an arms race in terms of um, spending commitments, which I think it's, I mean, it's a slightly different issue, which is that um, the, the, the discipline in terms of... Um, costing manifestos, etc. The competence element of what you talk yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually, the, the, the cost of actually promising stuff is, is slightly undermined by the um, voter scepticism about the, the facts that are being produced, I think. Mm. So, um, and obviously, the Conservatives don't wish to um, continue promoting austerity in this election. So, the, it means that there's slightly less of a distinction between... Um, between um, Labour and the Conservatives, even if even if Labour's spending commitments are a hell of a lot bigger. I mean, I think these numbers are so big in terms of the commitments that people can't really differentiate, you know, the billions from the millions from the trillions kind of thing. Yeah, OK, we've got a couple of hands up. So uh, more than a couple. Who's got a microphone? Where have we... Well, do you want to just choose somebody? There you go. Just choose it there and then hand it along. Just If you can keep sort of questions reasonably short. So yeah, we get as many. Um, Keith Best, I'm Secretary of the European Movement. Um, I was with Rob Hayward last night, whom you will, will know, and he said a couple of things, amongst many others. Uh, one was that this is an election which he's found to be extremely local rather than national, and I wonder if you would agree with that and what the implications are of that. The second thing is about trying to ascertain people's intentions. Men are known to lie more than women to <laughs> pollsters, statistically, uh, but also conservative men are far less likely to say they're switching to Lib Dem uh, if, they, if that's really what they're going to do. They will still maintain the fiction that they actually are strong conservatives. Again, would you agree with that conclusion? Um, so I'll, I'll start with the second one first about essentially the shy Tory question. So overall, the evidence for shy Tories isn't actually as strong as people have made out. Uh, we tend to think that whenever there's a polling miss, it means people have been lying. Uh, but the overall evidence from various studies that have been done, including by us, is that, well, the Conservatives were underestimating the polls, for instance, in 2015, and that was attributed to shy Tories. Actually, the problem was unrepresentative samples, that 
people weren't being sampled who were going to vote conservative in the first place rather than that they were lying about it. Um, with the Bridget Election Study face-to-face -face survey, which is a higher quality probability sample done immediately afterwards, in that there was no underrepresentation of the conservatives, whereas in the polls uh, and in the internet panel of the BES, the conservatives were underrepresented. So I think the shy Tory thing is probably not entirely untrue, but I think we often attribute to shy Tories what's actually problems with the polling samples. Mm. Um, we've got a question there from right. the lady. Um, I don't know if you can see us. Uh, yeah, my name's Joe Pye. I'm also from the European Movement. Um, I think Brexit is the elephant in the room. And I would say that is because none of the parties have said we're going to be able to spend X amount of trillions um, in year one of Brexit or of uh, Boris's deal or no Brexit. They have the fact that nobody has based any, none of the parties have based any of their calculations on the scenario after Brexit, a form of Brexit, means that Brexit is really the elephant in the room and that people are just voting blind. They cannot be voting along economic lines because the economics are just not there. The true picture isn't being put to us. Okay, it was a comment rather than a question, but thank you. Let's just pass it on, if you could pass it on to the lady there. Can I just ask a question in the meantime, just whilst we're getting ready there? Uh, you know, we've heard that the thing, something like 3.2 million new voters, potentially new voters, have registered since this election was called. It's an enormous amount. How much does, and, and I think the majority of those, I think from what I understand, could be under 34, I think is the, uh, how much does that impact, um, you know, switching? I mean, you've talked about switching parties. Many of these people don't have a party that they've never voted before. Um, I think the, the increase in registration is very interesting, and um, I believe it's substantially larger than it was yeah. um, at the last election, when it was also quite large. But what we've got to remember is that the switch to individual um, electoral registration was also um, accompanied with a move to rolling registration. And what happened is that certain groups became much more likely to drop off the register. Um, because of the individual registration and because registration at uh, any time of the year was allowed, means that certain groups, particularly those that move around a lot, were much more likely to drop off the register and then rejoin at election time. So what happened in 2017 was that lots of young people had dropped off the register and then they rejoined around election time. So even though they were joining in large numbers, the actual effect was much smaller than, than, the, um, the, than, than you'd than it would appear because they were simply people who had previously dropped off the register. And you think that could be repeated and here? that could be true again this time. So having said that, the increase is larger, so maybe there is a genuine increase. But we did some research on the impact of in individual um, electoral registration, and it did suggest that particularly young people were, were the most likely to fall off the register and also the most likely to join. Um, before an election. Okay, thank you. There's a question from, I think, the lady over there. Yeah. Uh, Emma Duncan, I work for The Economist. Um, if this is the Brexit election, it seems to me odd that <clears throat> during the campaign, we don't seem to have talked about Brexit that much, and I'd love to hear some comments on that. Um, and just one other thing, which is if the Conservatives are picking up more... Uh, Labour leavers than Labour is picking up Tory Remainers. Is that the measure of the failure of Labour's electoral strategy? Um, yeah, I guess I, I said before that uh, 
you know, there, there, there's an interesting mismatch both last time and, and this time between the party campaigns and uh, what voters seem to care about. And, and one way we saw that is in the last uh, campaign, um, and I'm sure this is something we'll repeat when we sort of have the data at the end of the election. If you ask voters what issues they cared about during the campaign, it was basically Brexit, 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 Brexit. And then, uh, you know, after the uh, Manchester terrorist attacks, then they cared about terrorism. But they, the, the voters cared about Brexit, even though the parties were, were doing their best not to uh, talk about it. And, and, and so I think it, uh, this idea that the parties, you know, the parties might be doing one thing, but that doesn't mean that voters are necessarily uh, paying attention to that or that they're making their decisions uh, based uh, on that sort of thing. Um, and as for uh, Labour's electoral campaign, uh, to be honest, I'd rather not comment on uh, uh, sort of partisan things, but I don't know if anyone else wants to say anything. Yeah, so just one point on Labour's campaign. I think one of the things to bear in mind is electoral change happens throughout the whole period from the previous election to the next one. So we saw in 2017, it wasn't really a campaign about Brexit. But nonetheless, the electoral change that happened was very much along Brexit lines because so much had already happened by the time the campaign started. So Labour actually in the campaign drew fairly evenly from Remainers and Leavers, but they'd already lost huge numbers of Leavers prior to the election. So they ended up with quite a polarised electorate without ever actually attracting Remainers specifically. Uh, so, yeah, when we talk about whether it's a Brexit election or not, we're talking about it for the whole period since the previous election, not just the campaign. Okay. There's another question. Somebody's got a mic there. Thank you. Thank you. You, you talked about the various factors that uh, caused the vote, the volatility and the switching um, uh, amongst those were the, the, the tribal allegiance, the, the, the issues uh, and so on. But what about the personalities um, as a factor in perhaps the campaigning more than anything? Um, uh, th this campaign seems to be blighted by the lack of, um, in my perception, of big beasts um, in fact, some of them have been completely silent, uh, notably um, a comment I think this morning in the press, Rhys Mogg and, and Diane Abbott have been absent for, for, for probably, well, for reasons anyway. Um, <laughs> you might have missed uh, a word out but, of that. But um, <laughs> couldn't find the adjective. Uh, the, um, so what, what I, I suppose um, in this, what is the impact mm. of personalities mm. and, uh, and the big beastism uh, rather like we see in the U.S. elections more, where it is big beastism of, of Trump and Obama and, and the personality cult, rather than the tribal or issue or other issues, other factors. question. Yeah, really good question. Um, I don't have a huge amount of evidence on this, but um, I would say that I, this afternoon I'll be talking about um, Labour voters and untapped potential voters in particular. And I think one thing that's interesting about those people that you might expect to vote Labour because they like Labour, the Labour Party, um, but they're not intending to vote for them, they, do, um, they, do, they don't like um, Jeremy Corbyn anything like as much as those other like, the people who do actually vote Labour. So that, that is really indicating that um, personality of the leaders can actually make a difference. And there's plenty of research to show that that leadership does matter at the margins. I mean, I think going back to a previous question, the vote is very much split along Brexit lines, but, but Labour are by no means mopping up the, um, the Remain vote, even though their vote is almost all Remain. So 
And obviously one of the important factors by that is the extent to which people like or agree with um, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, just one other point. I mean, the, the leadership effect that's probably the largest is actually Nigel Farage, of course. Uh, the Brexit party didn't exist at the start of this year, and he went on to win the European elections within you know, a matter of weeks of starting the party. So suddenly there are some figures who are capable of moving a lot of votes very fast. Uh, but of course, in a general election, you have a lot of other issues coming in, and uh, he hasn't been able to capitalize on that to quite the same extent as he was in the European elections. Do you have any um, evidence at the moment, I know it's very soon actually, just about this idea from the Lib Dems of revoking, which was meant to be, you know, the sort of, the, the big sort of clarion call to those fervent Remainers, but in, in effect, it doesn't seem yet to have materialized. Um, and yet, at the, when, it, when it was called at, the, at that time, it sort of felt like quite a big moment, and now it seems to have fizzled out. So I think there's something really interesting about the preferences about what to do next on the referendum. So on the one hand, actually, if you look at Remainers, about half of them have a first preference of revoke. Uh, so that's a really big group of voters who, if you gave them the choice of what to do next, would just go with revoke. And that would seem like it would be a huge opportunity for the Lib Dems. But the problem is actually that among those people who support revoke, they're also perfectly fine with a second referendum, whereas the other way around is not necessarily true. So the extreme position is the first preference of a lot of voters, but it's not the second preference of very many. So they're limiting themselves just to that small group, whereas people who support a second referendum uh, tend to have more overlapping preferences. Yeah, okay, lovely. There's a yeah, gentleman uh, there with the microphone. Can I take up that point about preference in relation to first past the post? and its impact on volatility. Because as we saw in 2017, the two major parties won a majority by far since 1951, I think, a percentage of the vote. And yet in the European elections, which based on a different system, the, the, their vote collapsed. Um, could you explain the impact of first past the post and the ability to have preference? Um, yes, it's a very good question, and it's something we talk about quite a lot in the book, actually, because um, the volatility is offset um, by inertia, essentially. There's a lot of inertia in our, in our party political system. A lot of that is to do with the electoral system. It's not just the electoral system. There's also party identification ties people, um, systems of funding, um, the press, and so forth, all have an impact creating inertia so that, so that the party system remains relatively stable. But I think perhaps the most important factor is the electoral system um, because depending on where people live, there isn't, um, there isn't a lot of choice in terms of um, the, like the, the candidates or the parties that could actually win in those constituencies. And that obviously means that um, there is a potential for tactical switching um, in some areas. Um, and that has been a, a major disadvantage to the smaller parties over the years. Um, but I think maybe John's got some more up-to-date um, yes. evidence on that. Yeah, so I'll be talking about in a whole presentation of the tactical voting in 2019. But I think there's a few things going on with the European elections. So on the one hand, you do have a different electoral system, but you also have 
an election where the EU is always front and center, which tends to mean that parties having messages on the EU get those messages heard a bit more. So the Lib Dems and Brexit party do better in those elections because it's speaking to their issues. And you also have them being second order elections. So voters don't necessarily feel that the result matters for governance. They think it's a way to send a message as well. So you have those factors working in as well as just the electoral system. Okay, question there from the gentleman. Yeah, sorry, this is, a, this is a process question. Um, just checking, the, the slide you showed us, which was of the last panel survey, was P18. Um, am I right in saying you, you said that was conducted November the 1st to the 11th? Um, so that straddles the period in which Farage announced the Brexit party wouldn't contest Conservative-held seats. So the, in a sense, those, those numbers probably exaggerate the Brexit Party, only for practical reasons, because if there's no Brexit Party candidate, you can't vote for them. Um, so I was just wondering what impact you think sort of stripping that out has. And secondly, just as a matter of curiosity, when you come to the, presumably the final panel, P19, is that also held over a 10-day period, or do you try and concertina it into a shorter um, survey period? Um, so the, so yeah, the, as, you, as you said, the 17th wave, um, which was the data I was using, um, was the first to the eleventh, I, I believe, um, and you're right about straddling the time when um, Brexit Party kind of retreated. Um, so we do probably have our largest uh, support for the Brexit Party in those data than than is now the case. So um, the nine percent um, Brexit Party were on in our data, um, so that's obviously going to have fallen away quite a lot since then. Um, the Liberal Democrats were on sixteen percent at that point. Um, and Labour were on 27 and the Conservatives 38. So there has been a bit of change since then because of the timing, particularly with the Brexit Party. Um, the, 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 the wave after that, the campaign wave, was run from the day after that finished, the 12th of December, um, November, up until uh, the day... It's, it's still, still running It's now. still running. So it's, um, it's done daily. We interview around 1,000 voters per day uh, and that's following up with the same voters we interviewed before the election as well. And the 30,000 people over the whole... Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then they will be re-interviewed for a third time like after the election as well. And we'll be doing, as you asked about the um, 19th wave, after the election, starts the day after the election. We normally go for an, um, up to two weeks, about, um, but that would take us to Boxing Day. So <laughs> we were just talking over breakfast whether people will actually be answering the survey on Christmas Day or not. I, <laughs> I, uh, John, sus phones off John suspected they might be. <laughs> I, I was surprised, but maybe he's right. Airplane mode for all phones. Right. Um, let's get a few more questions. There's a gentleman there, and then there's a couple of gentlemen there, and then somebody, and two down there, and the lady at the back. Good. Okay, let's... Uh, Malcolm Dean, ex-Guardian. Could, could you tell us a bit more about the disappoint, disappointing Liberal um, vote and the degree to which the leader seems to lose more people as she as more polls are made towards her. So back, back down to sort of the personality question, I guess, and about leadership and you know how much of an impact that has. Um, well, I have to say I haven't looked at the data in terms of what people think about Joe Swinson. I, I, I think one issue is probably that part of it is driven by uh, lots of people didn't know who she was, and then lots of people who wouldn't have liked her uh, if they did know who she was because they're Leave voters have suddenly discovered who she is. And so that's going to, you know, push things down. 
uh, a bit more. I guess, I guess more generally about the Lib Dems is one, one thing we look at uh, in the book uh, that Ed touched on before is um, the role of uh, sort of perceptions of viability in, in places. And one thing that we didn't really notice uh, sort of in the immediate aftermath of the 2017 election was that amongst Remainers, attitudes towards the Lib Dems had recovered hugely compared to uh, 2015. So just in terms of how people felt about them, you know, people were very negative about the Lib Dems in 2015. And then in 2017, uh, amongst Remainers, the attitudes had sort of shifted not quite up to what they were sort of, you know, 2010 levels, but like they had got quite far up there. But what didn't change was perceptions of how likely the Lib Dems were to win um, in seats. Those were basically still at the 2015 levels. And we'll have to look, um, you know, when we get our data back after the election, how those perceptions have, have changed this time round. But my feeling is that it's, they're probably going to be quite similar and that this is the big implement, uh, impediment to uh, a Lib Dem breakthrough is that people just don't think that they can win and so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, you don't vote, them, vote for them because you don't think they're going to win. You talk to other people who aren't voting for them. And so, you know, the cycle uh, continues. And of course, when they did have power, they let lots of people down. So there's that element as well. OK, let's grab a couple of the question there and then from the gentleman at the back as well. Um, how soon, you said you're going to poll people after they've actually voted. How soon will that data be, pub when will that data be published? Um, a question about the um, volatility in European elections. If European elections are second order elections, in other words, no one really cares who their MEP is, it's a protest vote. Has anyone ever stripped those those elections out, and, and how does that does that sort of make volatility volatility look much bigger than it really is? And the other question, which I don't know if there's an answer to, but at the beginning you said the kind of two, the, the three big explanations of switching or volatility were decline in party in um, party uh, in the rise of the small parties, electoral shocks. And then the third thing I can't remember, which um, has anyone ever asked what lies behind those things? So if, if that if that's kind of why is volatility increasing? Why are those things increasing? What is that linked to the fact that there used to be three, four million members of the Tory party in the 50s and two have a many million Labour Party members in the 50s? And we're just is that a sort of has anyone got an explanation of those bigger trends? Um, so I'll, I'll deal with the sort of first easy question. Uh, is we don't, we haven't got a strict schedule. Um, we are generally a bit slower than, uh, say, pollsters because uh, we release our individual level data files, and not just you know sort of summary tables. Uh, in uh, 2017, it took us five weeks from when the field work ended to when we released our data. Uh, we have Christmas this time, so it might be a little bit. Uh, slower, but um, I guess probably February sometime around that. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then on the uh, volatility uh, and second order elections, we're not actually, that; those weren't in that graph actually, those were just um, general elections. Uh, we do think though that there is probably some role for these second order elections in driving volatility, right? Because if you uh, have a chance to vote for a different party to what you might normally vote for, uh, there's a lot of good evidence in, in political science that suggests that you know, this helps break down some of the, um, the sort of bonds you might have with your, you know, your usual party because you've, you've, you know, you've betrayed them in, in some sense. And then it's much easier to uh, switch around uh, to another party uh, later on. And then... Yeah, so the, the question of what lies behind the trends driving volatility, uh, it's a great question, and the answer is we don't 100% know. 
Uh, but what we do see is that party identity has declined mostly generationally. So each generation comes in with lower levels of party identity than the previous one. And so there's kind of a ratchet effect here. Part of it is each generation socializes the next one. So there's fewer and fewer young people being socialized by politically um, identifying parents. So that's definitely part of it too. But uh, there's probably some deep social trends going on in here. And we've looked as much as we can, but beyond the generational replacement, it's still, I would say, an outstanding mystery in the electorate. Lovely question there. I think we've probably got time for about three more questions. Uh, yes, yes, quick question. Not um, all yours, though. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I only have one quick question. I'm, I'm, I'm from the, also from The Economist. Um, I, I like this phrase that Brexit is now the basis of all British politics, but it raises in my mind perhaps a speculative question, because you don't have data on this. What happens to kind of phrase when Brexit gets done? Um, does this continue, or does it completely disappear? Uh, it's sort of hard to know. So it, one, things we, one of the things we talk about in the book is uh, the sort of potential for electoral shocks to basically upset the apple cart. And you only have to go back you know, to 2015, which was uh, you know, within a normal electoral cycle. And back then, we were talking about austerity. Uh, you know, we were talking about uh, the impact of cuts. And, and that was basically you know, what the 2015 election uh, was largely about. And now no one cares about austerity. You know, well, I mean, Labour keep talking about it, but by and large, you know, the people who were pro-austerity uh, don't seem to be that bothered by it anymore. You know, there, there's no talk about cuts, and 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 voters aren't sort of punishing uh, the parties anymore for uh, what they did uh, to the economy. And so, one way Brexit could play out is that something else comes along, and you know, we start caring about that. Uh, a, a sort of second way it could uh, come about is that you know if, if Brexit goes uh, badly and um, the economy uh, struggles, then we could sort of see a, a slightly oddly uh, Brexit-caused return to the sort of economic uh, competition as as you know people start to care about these things again, or uh, you know it, it, other issues that sort of tap into this uh, cultural divide in in, uh, in British public opinion could. You know, take up the Brexit mantle as you like, and we could continue along this, uh, this sort of road of uh, of sort of social uh, issue politics, a bit like uh, the U.S. has done. And so we don't know is the sort of you know simple answer, but you know it could play out in uh, a sort of variety of ways. Okay. Another question there. Uh, yeah, it's just a question about um, the volatility of 2017 compared to now. One of the things that I found talking to people in the 2017 election uh, was that a lot of conservative Remainers, especially were happy to switch because they thought the outcome of the election was predetermined, that the Conservatives were heading for a big majority, and that was the narrative all the way through the campaign. Um, and they were happy to switch on that basis because they didn't think they would accidentally put Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. Um, anecdotally, that seems to be slightly different this time, and the narrative is that it's a lot closer election. Do you measure the extent to which people think that their vote matters in the election and the impact that that has on their willingness to switch? Um, and do you think that's... And have you picked up that change with Conservative Remainers this time? Uh, so we, we, John and I actually looked at this question of you know, whether people were voting for Jeremy Corbyn because they thought he was going to lose. Uh, and actually, we find the, the opposite, that uh, the more people... You know, thought he was going to win in 2017, the more likely they were actually to flock for him. Uh, and I, I think partly this is because you know, back in 2017, a lot of the reasons people disliked 
Jeremy Corbyn was because they thought other people disliked him. And so they thought he was going to lose the election. And then once it you know, became apparent that actually you know, there was a bit more momentum behind him, they lost that, you know, that big reason to, to dislike him. And, and so you know, we, you know, I'm sure there were some conservatives who, who thought uh, that you know, they had a safe chance, and so they did. So you know, there's definitely going to be a few people like that. But the sort of dominant uh, story, we think, is the opposite. Uh, and then in, in terms of a, a general pattern, some work I've done with uh, Jane and Ed shows that uh, when people think there's going to be a hung parliament, they're much more likely to support uh, the smaller parties because the smaller parties are, are more likely to have a, a sort of a larger sort of power uh, in a hung parliament situation. And so you know, these perceptions do matter, and uh, we do uh, measure them uh, in, throughout the campaign. Uh, I don't know actually what they're saying at the moment, um, to be honest. I haven't, I haven't looked at it. Um, just on that, uh, voters at the moment have a surprisingly strong expectation that there will be a hung parliament. Uh, I think most pollsters and experts think that a Tory majority is very likely, but voters think there's a much higher probability that there could be a hung parliament, nearly as likely as a conservative majority. That doesn't mean they're right, but a lot of them are making that... Uh, a lot of them have that in their mind when they're making their decisions at the moment. And interestingly, you know, when there was the seat-by-seat -seat projection uh, that came out probably last week, I think it was the Tory majority of 68, I think it said in the end. I mean, do you have any sense of what impact that actually has on undecided voters in the sense that actually, since then, in some polls, it looks like Labour have increased their percentage vote by two or, th two or three points. You know, the, the lead has narrowed to nine. It's is, can you sense whether actually those sorts of projections of a of a Tory majority galvanise more undecided Labour voters to go, we better get out there? So uh, our data came in just before the MRP was released, so we don't have the reactions to that yet. Uh, but what I can say is only about 11% of voters in the campaign so far when we got our data had visited a tactical voting website. So that's maybe high, maybe low, depending on what you think. But it's certainly not a very high proportion of voters who are paying attention to these sources. Maybe they'll switch to it towards the end of the campaign when they're making their final decision. But at the moment, that information may or may not be actually filtering through to every voter. So I think it probably has more effect on maybe the media narrative yeah. that more voters end up seeing than it does directly on them by reading the seat-by-seat -seat results. Okay, interesting. Go on, Ed. We, do that. we have asked an interesting question, actually, which, um, about where people got their information from, about which party was um, winning. Well, we asked people... We asked we asked respondents to assess how likely each party is to win in their constituency, um, and then we asked them what information they they used to um, to to come to that conclusion. Obviously, we haven't looked in great detail yet, but I think the most common source of information is simply the election result in the previous election. So, I don't think they're necessarily updating very reliably. Yeah, interesting. Okay, have you got a mic? Yeah. Niall Walsh, Oxford Analytica. My question is, to what extent do you see the potential for blue-collar voters in influencing this election outcome? Sure. So I think certainly uh, blue-collar voters, working-class voters, are distributed fairly in a fairly concentrated way in some quite important seats that the Conservatives might want to take. So their choices, I think, are going to be important. Uh, but that's true of a lot of different groups of voters. So... I think we should absolutely be paying attention to what working class voters are going to do, but they're far from the only group who might swing the election. Okay, we've probably got time for one more question if we have one. And oh, that's ended very nicely. No more questions. There is one question. There you go. Sorry, you're right under my nose. Should I give you that? Thank you very much. Um, to what extent 
are other issues like, for example, the health service or climate change, frankly, being crowded out by Brexit? Uh, so just on, on the climate change one, I, I think uh, one of the really interesting shifts in the polls was the support for the Green Party, which before the election was called was on the up and up and up. You know, the environment had been in the news, Extinction Rebellion was going on. Uh, and that was going up particularly amongst young people, uh, as you, you sort of might expect. Uh, but then the election was called and then very, very quickly it, it dived back uh, around the other way. And I, I think... Um, it is being uh, crowded out. And I, I guess the NHS is uh, a sort of perennial election issue. Uh, we will sort of know after the fact um, more uh, how that has sort of played out. There's been a lot of speculation that, you know, because it's winter and because, you know, uh, the NHS is, you know, generally more under strain during winter that we might have more of an NHS effect. Uh, and, but I don't know if that will be uh, the case. Anyone else? Okay, thank you very much. Can we just show our appreciation to Professor Edward Fieldhouse, Dr. Jonathan Mellon, and Dr. Christopher Prosser. Thank you very much.